Amen. One other thing, um, I want to thank you, church, for being so generous last week. You um, absolutely invested in hot dogs, which send kids to camp, and I think just a scratch under $1,000 you raised for <laughs> by eating hot dogs. You are an amazing people. Way to go. Yeah. So, I mean, we eat pies for Jesus. We eat hot dogs for Jesus. And so, I love that. Okay, today's uh, proverb... Today's the fourth, so out of chapter four, I chose verse 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So today, uh, we're going to jump forward in, uh, in this series of transformation, and we're going to return to this topic at, at some point in the future. Um, I just kind of remind you of where we've been. We started out by kind of kicking to the curb um, faulty human-based methods for change. We talked about that. I'm not going to re-preach any of this. And then we, we took some time to get on board with the most important change, which is relationship with Christ. We talked about salvation. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is drawing you. I promise you right now that if you turn to the Lord, if you believe that he died and rose from the dead, and confess with your mouth, you will be saved, and eternity will turn for you. I encourage you to do that. Um, then we spent some time about getting specific. In fact, we went home with sin lists. Remember the sin list? Okay. So we, 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 we took home the sin list, not as a list of things, not as a to-do list, but um, as a, a, co- a topic of conversation between the Holy Spirit. And I had people calling and say, hey, you left this one off the list. And I thought, oh, that's good. Um, so there was some things going on. I know the Holy Spirit was at work. And we've talked about for the last two weeks repentance because change always starts with repentance. It's hard, and, and Scripture teaches that sometimes it's impossible. So today I'm going to jump ahead, and I want to talk to you that, about the fact that lasting change requires biblical friendship. People who change are surrounded by caring, supportive, supportive friends. And uh, I I'm encourage you right now to do a little heart check on that and uh, think about that yourself. Think about the people um, that people who change, people who, who last in that change, people who grow are surrounded by biblical friendships. And I use the word biblical because not all friendships are biblical. <laughs> the book of Proverbs helps us out. Here are two Proverbs, uh, chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. <laughs> Learned that in grade school. Still, you know, you can learn it, keep on learning it your whole life. And even more to the point, um, twelve twenty six: the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. So if you um, are righteous through faith in Christ, you should choose your friends carefully, because the way of the wicked will lead you astray. So when, when, when God got a hold of Terry's life um, in my late teens, one of the things that needed to change immediately was my friends. <laughs> and a time of separation was, you know, I didn't abandon my friends, but there was a point where I needed to kind of, um, you know, make a, a turn. And, um, and I needed, because I needed biblical friends. I needed life-giving friendships. I, I needed some faith-building friendships. I, I had to have that. And, and maybe that's been the thing for, um, that maybe it's for some of you, it's holding you back. Um, you, you come to church and, and you, know, you, know, you know where you want to go with the Lord and, um, and the direction, but then the phone rings or somebody calls and says, hey, let's do this and so, and, and you end up in a place that you never meant to be. I don't mean a physical place, but um, you end up with some people that are not going where you want to go in your heart. So, and there are lots and lots of examples of friends in scriptures. Um, Abraham had Sarah. They weren't perfect people, but they were supportive of each other, and they were believers, and they were faithful. Uh, Moses had Jethro, 
who said, hey, you, 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 know, you can't do everything yourself. You've gotta, you, you're going to make yourself crazy if you don't do some things. So he, he invested in him. He also had Aaron who, um, you know, they were kind of a teaching team. Moses just couldn't do it all himself, so they shared the weight of the communication. Joshua had a, a guy named Caleb. And while everybody else around him was doubting, um, um, Joshua was strengthened by this one friend who had the kind of faith that, uh, that he had, that, that, that God was calling them to. Ru- uh, Boaz was a ruthless man before he had Ruth. <laughs> Don't you know that a pastor, it's in our blood, we have to stick a pun in the, in the message somewhere, so you can relax now, we're done with the pun. Okay, anyway, Ruth, <laughs> yeah, so those of you that didn't get it, I cannot help you. <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, Ruth had Boaz, and, and, and um, you know, Boaz picked up on the, the God, God-driven purposes in her lives and married her, and it's a, it's a wonderful New Testament picture of, of the gospel. Esther had a guy named Mordecai. and Now, these are all not classic friends that you might think of, but these people were friends in their lives. Um, Mordecai, well, almost everybody else around um, Esther was doing and saying the wrong things. Just outside the palace for Esther was this guy, Mordecai, who held out for God's highest. And, uh, and God's best for her, even when it was producing fear, you know, even when it was producing anxiety and, and causing her to doubt. In the New Testament, there are lots of examples. Paul had several. He had a guy named Barnabas. He had Silas. He had Timothy and friends of faith and, and, because you just can't walk uh, the faith alone. Jesus Christ himself in places that said he had the 70 and then the 12 and then the three. Uh, Mark 6 tells us that when they were sent out, they were sent out two by two. Nobody goes alone. There's this idea of, of not having friends is not good. And that's why today we're going to talk about the power of biblical friendship because a lot of the power that's present in a Christian's life comes through, in many cases, the people in this room. You know, the people that you worship with, the people in your family, the people in your small groups. Um, you're, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this alone. We need each other because lasting change needs biblical friendship. If you've been trying to live a Christian life, um, it, it's like it's some kind of a solo sport. Um, you're trying to do it on your own. If you've been trying to, to, to live the Christian life with friends who actually lead you further from the Lord, you know, the, Bible, the Bible starts off with, with Adam and Eve, and um, their reputation of helping one another um, was really kind of terrible. You know, they didn't do... The Bible starts off with this failed relationship of the, neither one of them helping the other person do what God would call them to, was, what was best and what was right. Samson is another example. You know, he, he's, he, Samson is a, just a string of problems with women, and the problem wasn't the women. The problem was with Samson, you know, and it makes you wonder, you know, where are the brothers, where are the men in Samson's life that say, hey, you womanizing fool, knock it off. You know, just because you got muscles, I guess. I don't know why they, 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 they where the guys were in, in his life. And Saul had Samuel, but Saul would not listen to Samuel. And, um, you know, Samuel tried to be a biblical friend to Saul, and, but, but Saul just wouldn't have it. So, so we're going to get today into uh, 1 Samuel 23. And here's the context of where we're headed. Um, now, Israel has been demanding of God, give us a king. We need a king. 
And God's saying, <laughs> you believe you do not want a government, believe me, here's the problems with any government. They will tell you how to run your life. They will do all this kind of stuff and, and um, tax you, and they're going to tax you exceedingly, and they're going to conscript your boys and send them off to war. You don't want a king. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. God says, okay, fine. Here's your king. And God gives him Saul. And Saul torpedoes his own life through all this disobedience and, and insecurity. And, and at some point along that line, David becomes anointed king by God, although he has not taken the actual physical office yet. And um, um, before he could take his throne, and, and David was a man, God calls David a man after his own heart. And before he could take the throne, um, Saul comes up with these just plans for murder. He's got murder swirling in his soul about David, and he did everything he could to kill him. And, um, and at one time, at one point in his life, Saul, ha- Saul had invited David into the palace and treated him like a family, treated him like a son. And uh, now he wants to kill him. And David's running around the, the uh, Judean countryside, and he's fleeing, and he's living in caves. And, but in all of that, Saul's son, Jonathan, was this biblical friend. He was a, a true friend. He was a faithful friend. And from that relationship, we're going to see a pattern for him. And we're going to start in 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Verse 17, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Wow. Okay, so a biblical friend, two, there's two major points today, um, some subpoints under a couple of them, but one of the two major points is a biblical friend holds you up when you struggle. I'm going to boil this biblical friendship thing down into two things. And that's the first one. A biblical friend holds you up when you struggle. If ever there was a friendship that, with a potential to fail, it's this friendship between David and Jonathan. I mean, David was lonely and persecuted, and he was far from home, and he's needy. If I came to you and said, hey, I got somebody I want you to meet. I want you to become friends with them. And he's lonely far from home, persecuted, and needy, you'd go, oh, yeah, great. Where do I sign up to be that guy's friend, right? So, I mean, I don't know why this is going on. And if that's not bad enough, Jonathan, he's got this, Jonathan comes from this messed up home. His mother's real passive, and his father is this maniacal tyrant. And, um, you know, um, you know and, and, and both these boys, Jonathan, I call them boys, Jonathan and David wanted to be king. They're going for the same throne. And... Um, Jonathan's father had made kind of David a son now, and he's trying to kill him. Okay, this is not a recipe for a great friendship, but Jonathan's invested. So out of this adversity comes this powerful you know, picture of what friendship really is. And we're going to see four things in this passage. Number one, friendship is presence at the worst of times. Presence. Verse 16, and Jonathan, Saul's, run, son, Saul's son, rose and went to David. Jonathan went to him. He went to him. That's the powerful friendship, the powerful biblical friendship. The key here is presence. Presence. And Jonathan had a lot of reasons to stay away. He had everything to lose and not hardly anything to gain. First off, he, could, he, was, he, he risked his, his, his father's wrath. You know, at one point at dinner, um, Saul threw um, a sword and tried to kill his own son. Because Jonathan was being loyal to David. He, his father tried to kill him. He's, put his own, he's putting his own life at risk. He's also putting at risk his own position. Because if Saul was successful and killed David, guess who would be the next king? It would be Jonathan. 
So David's alone and he's afraid. He's feeling this, you know, the weight of being falsely accused. And, and there's just no way that Jonathan's going to let his friend down. Presence. He's just there. It's awesome. It's awesome to know that when things are the toughest, when the night is the darkest, to know that you have forged a relationship with someone and no matter what happens, they will be there for you. Jonathan rose and he went to him. Okay, so one, the power of presence. Number two, prayer. Not just presence, but prayer. You're going to see this in the text when you see what's happening. Verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Now, this is not some kind of a mutual admiration society. Presence has to be more than just physically being there with some kind of, you know, isn't it nice? Maybe the Seahawks will do well. No. This Hebrew word strengthened is literally fastened upon. It, it, the idea is being strengthened by a bond. It's kind of like um, when I was in eighth grade shop and I was terrible at it and I broke the piece of wood and you know, the shop teacher wasn't going to hand me another piece of black walnut because it's expensive, right? And he said, you're going to glue that. And I'm saying, glue? And he basically said, when you, if you glue it correctly, that joint will be stronger than the wood itself. That's the idea. It's a, this bond, strengthened, fastened upon. And by this time, David was already this, this great man of God. He was a slayer of giants. He was this man after God's own heart. But he's hurting. He's discouraged. He's disillusioned. He's living in a cave. It's <laughs> a dark nights for him. And notice that Jonathan didn't make any of these dumb comments <laughs> that we can say sometimes. You know, well, my dad will come around eventually, or it's not as bad as it seems. I mean, throwing, you know, he's trying to kill you. It is as bad as it seems. Look on the positive side. Now, he's not saying any of those stupid <laughs> things that I've said before. Um, <clears throat> and maybe you're thinking, well, I just don't know what to say. Well, you know, we hear something terrible, and we don't do anything because we don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to start out by telling you presence is never wrong. Your presence is never going to be wrong when you've got a friend who's hurting. Just go and, if you have to, just go and sit there um, because that's saying something too. But um, I believe, although the text does not literally say this, but I believe that, that Jonathan must have prayed with him. I believe this. I think what's going on there is one of the things is, that, hey, 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 David, let's, let's talk to God about this. There's nothing better you can do than taking a hurting friend to the Lord sincerely, can I pray for you? And those should be words that kind of are ringing in our hallways before and after services. You should feel compelled to pray for each other if something comes up, you know. And uh, I mean, I, I, guess I could say instead of, you know, people will say, hey, would you pray for me about thus? And so I could say, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And I mean well, but then I remember later and I wonder what happened in that intervening time. So I'm trying to learn to do this. Say, you know what? Yes, I will. But let's stop. Let's pray right now. And so I've ended up doing that. And I pray with some people in some awkward places. You know, I've prayed with people in some really awkward places. You know, I, I feel like it's awkward. But I have to tell you this too. I am not afraid, ashamed of the gospel. Because the power of salvation um, to those who believe. Romans 1, Romans 1. So be sensitive and find a place, but pray right now. I, I would encourage you to do that. I, just, just, you can pray later too. And I, I believe that Jonathan did that. One of the best things you can do is take a hurting friend of the Lord. You can't necessarily solve their problems. 
You're there to strengthen their hand in God is what's, what's being described here. So presence, and then, um, then prayer. And then notice the number three thing is protection, which I see in a couple of ways. Verse 17, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. David was um, you know, emotional. He's got to be pretty distraught. He's, he's running for his life. And Jonathan here is calmly assuring him, you know, he's saying with some tone of assurance, don't worry, my father is not going to find you. My father's not, don't, you don't have to be, my father will not find you. And so we try to anticipate what the struggling, hurting person, you know, might be feeling and then bring this assurance. And I, I think how often um, is it that as friends we kind of fail to be biblical friends and we miss the power of, 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 of biblical friendship, too often um, even Christians will say foolish things and kind of inflame the problem rather than help it, you know. Well, I see why you're so upset, you know, and yeah, she drives me crazy too, or um, you have every right to feel this way. You know, when our heart feels like a tornado, the last thing we need is somebody to come along with a fan to get that thing spinning more. I mean, you know, you think you're upset now. Wait till I get done helping you get more upset. I mean, it's like, and, and that kind of talk, I would just call that counseling to the flesh. Counseling to the flesh. That's when you find yourself saying the things that a person's flesh wants to hear instead of saying the things that their spirit needs to hear. And anybody can push a slipping brother downhill in the wrong direction. Anybody can do that. That's not biblical friendship. Biblical friendship goes to them. It strengthens them. Um, strengthens their hand in God, and it gives assurance. Don't be afraid. Don't be a fear. My, my, you know, my father's not going to find you. Then notice this assurance, which is part of the protection, but notice also the loyalty here. I love this part. Verse 17. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. What humility this must have taken. It's not me, David. I would have been born to be king, but I know it's not true. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. I don't mind you being number one. I just want to help you. I just want to support God's call in your life. What an awesome thing he's doing. Then he says, Saul, my father, also knows this. Loyalty. I love loyalty. What's better than a loyal, loyal friend? Thank God for our loyal friends who help us and, and support us and sustain us. When we stumble, we need friends who will protect us with fierce loyalty. So let me ask you, rhetorical, don't answer this out loud. Are you a loyal friend? Instead of listening to this message and saying to yourself, well, I wish I had some loyal friends, turn that question around and ask yourself, am I a loyal friend? How do you respond when, when, when your friend gets criticized? You know, there might be truth in the criticism, but most of the time in criticism, it's, you know, one-sided and unfair. But whatever the case, do you spring to their defense with, uh, and, and, you know, and focus on their strengths and, and, and not their weaknesses? Because it's not enough to later say, so-and-so said this about you, but I didn't believe them. The real question is, did you challenge it in, in, in that moment? Somebody, somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, you know, Lisa, she's a scoundrel. <laughs> what do you do in that moment? Besides laugh, because we know she's not a scoundrel. 
I mean, because what you do in that moment is to some degree a test of your friendship. I'm not talking about blind, blind loyalty. I'm talking about loyalty, though. So criticism has it, it, its only goal. The only goal of criticism is to, is to tear down. Loyalty in, the fr- in a friendship is, is being committed in this process of holding them up when they struggle. A biblical friend holds you up when you struggle. Okay, presence, prayer, protection, and then num- notice this, the promise. Um, verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish and Jonathan went home. Friendship, just, friendship needs to be verbalized. There's power in words of true commitment. I think people give up because they feel alone and, and, and feel abandoned. But people will stay together even through a storm because they sense the power of partnership. David and Jonathan, they made this covenant and then they verbalize it. And this is not, some, this is not the inferior kind of temporary kind of commitment like, well, I'm committed to you because of who I think you are. You know, because we shouldn't ever be friends, committed to somebody because of who we think they are. There should only be, there's only one person worthy of that kind of worship, right? Right? Jesus Christ. Okay. And, and when, because when you find out that person isn't everything that you think they are, that, then that will become your excuse and your reason to bail on the commitment. That's an inferior commitment. Another one is, you know, I'm committed to who I want you to be. Who I want you to be. You know, when they say I do at the altar, what they really mean was I'm committing, committing myself to make you into who I need you to be for me. <laughs> who I have to have you be. And, and I, I know, you know, you might be saying, well, I, I didn't say that at the altar and I wasn't thinking that at the altar and I don't think that way. The question is, do you treat your spouse, your husband or your wife that way? Strength gets built into a marriage when a person is capable of saying, I don't accept where you are, but I'm committed to who you are. I, I, I don't have blinders on, but I'm committed to what God is doing and shaping you, and I'm all for it. Committed. Pause for a second. Lord, I want to right there because we've been talking about, just for a, an example, uh, the holy estate of marriage, God, created by you with a specific purpose. Help us to have a fresh commitment there, Lord to the power of a biblical friendship in our marriages and in our home, but not just there, but in all of our relationships. And then number third kind of um, inferior commitment, and this one I think is the worst. I'm committed to you because of what you can do for me. But when you can't be there to do it for me anymore, if, if you can't do better for me, you know, you know, you've probably been in a relationship before where you came out of the other end and felt like you were just used, you know. Um, but I hope that that won't cause you to become disillusioned with the whole idea of friendship because you shouldn't give up on the value of, of biblical re- friendship. The, uh, the key ingredient in, in this, of course, is love. You know, change isn't easy, and sometimes you want to, you know, quit and slow down and, and you want to get off the track. But Proverbs 17 tells us, it says, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. You find out who your real friends are when times get tough, when the challenges come, when, when it's not convenient, when it's not helpful, when it's not profitable to be your friend. Look around in those moments and the people you see next to you then, those are your actual friends. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 
born for adversity. I mean, I wish I could walk you <laughs> down the halls of my you know, life and show you the, the, the times of crisis, the, the times of my life when over these decades where certain friends have been that faithful friend who sticks closer than a brother. God enabled them to do that. Okay, but that's just the easy part. Doesn't sound easy, but that's the easy part. N- not just a friend who holds you up when you struggle. It's harder to be a friend who holds you down when you stray. Okay, you follow me on that? I mean, okay, Second Samuel, we're going to need to meet another one of David's friends. This guy was also a faithful friend. And he wasn't just an encourager. He wasn't just there present and, and his support and encouragement um, in the promise. More people are good at that, by the way, than the second part we're going to talk about. A biblical friend holds you up when you struggle, and a biblical friend holds you down when you stray. Holds you down when you stray. Okay, so here's the context for another one of David's friends. He was king of Israel. He was a very successful king. Jonathan's kind of out of the picture now. And this is many years later, and he's, he's, he's building his family. He's very, very popular. He's got high approval numbers, so, you know. And uh, his, in fact, his popularity was so high that when springtime came, when, uh, when, they, when they would go out for battle, he decides to stay back, you know. You know, Second Sam, Samuel 11 says, in the spring of the year when kings go out to b- battle, and it talks about that, but David stayed home. When kings do this, he's not doing what kings do. Okay, you guys handle it now. I'm, I'm a little older. I'm just going to take it easy. Okay, that's basically what. But, but, but listen, David, you may have been faithful in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, but your greatest challenges to fidelity to God, to sticking with God's work, might come in your 50s or 60s or even older. Don't, David, don't think that you got it beat just because you got a lot of life experience temptations. Don't think that just because of that you had life experience that temptations have passed you by. So David's comfort now has turned into his danger and, and he sent these guys out into battle and he stays home and he's up on the roof and he looks out and uh, he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba. The Bible says he sent for her, he took her, he slept with her which is an absolute disaster for the nation. It's a terrible thing that now are going on. This guy's not his wife. He's another man's wife, a guy named Uriah. And after a little bit of time, she comes knocking at the door. I'm pregnant. (laughs) Oh, baby. Literally. (laughs) Pun not intended that time, okay? So that one doesn't get charged to me, okay? Okay. Don't say, oh, two puns Sunday, Terry. Way to go. No, okay. Okay, so... I just get in trouble. Okay, so, you know, what should David have done at that point? He should have fallen on his face and, and he should have repented. Where are David's friends? He's become isolated. He's, you know, he's, which is always what our spiritual enemy wants to do to us, isolate us. And he starts plotting this cover up and um, he calls Uriah home and um, thinking that, well, maybe Uriah will sleep with his wife and not realize that the child isn't his. Uriah is such an honorable man. He says, oh, I, I, I'm, I'll sleep on the porch. I'm not going to go and enjoy the comforts at home while my pals are on the battlefield. I'm sure David didn't like to hear that because he ought to have been there too. And so the plot doesn't work, so David escalates it up 
his evil, he ramps it up and he basically sends a note back with Uriah to the, to the general and says, put him on the front lines, back away, let them kill him. Uriah was such an honorable man. He didn't open the note. He takes this note back with his order of execution. Just crazy stuff going on. Somebody must have known. Nobody says anything to David. Where were his friends? <laughs> okay, so finally in 2 Samuel, the Lord sends him a friend. Okay, um, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Pause. Nathan was actually a good friend of David's. And there are three passages where um, Scripture talks about the two of them crossing paths and talks about the circumstances. It's an interesting study in friendship. I'm not going to talk about the other two, um, but th- just this one. So anyway, so, uh, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan, because he needed a biblical friend. He, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man... Now, this is an analogy he's telling King David, and David is the rich man in the story, but David hasn't picked up on this. Okay. The rich man had, a very, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb named Bathsheba, which he, had brought, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. So here's a picture. That this, this lamb sits on his lap and eats off, you know, it's intimate. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there, was, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was, un, you know what, that whole thing of a daughter, don't get twisted on that. I'll tell you how I feel about my daughters. <laughs> They're precious to me. They're absolutely precious to me. You know Rachel, you don't know Junko. She comes a couple of times. She's my son's wife, and, and they live out of town. They are, don't mess with my daughters. <laughs> I smile at you, but I mean it. <laughs> anyway, okay. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then, as he's hearing the story, David's anger, he's still not figured this out yet. You mean the guy who had all these sheep, he took the other man's one and only precious you. And now his, his anger is now kind of spinning. Okay, we got some temperature here. We're, we're probably already at the red line or maybe a little over it. He's thinking about this terrible injustice. His anger's going, this sin. He doesn't see it. It's him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Now, I was thinking about this moment in the sermon. Beer commercials. You're the man. You're the man. You're the man. That was not the tone. I also don't think it was, you're the man. I don't think it was that either. I think it was, you're the man. You're that guy. You've become that guy. It broke Nathan's heart as it broke the Lord's heart. The anger didn't need to be injected. He's telling him the truth in love. Consider all of the reasons there, all of the reasons that Nathan could have come up with to not have this conversation. I'm not going to say that to the king. Somebody closer to him should do this. But they were all silent. Nobody's talking. 
I'll lose my position. He's the king. Regal setting, the guards are present. I don't know. Confront that guy? But that's what a true fan is willing to do. And Nathan tells him the truth. He stands up and says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now there is a biblical friend. It wasn't, why did you disrespect me? Why, why did you, what you did upset me? But how did you do this evil against God? How can you do this? And Nathan puts it all on the line. He shoves his chips to the middle of the table. And everybody needs somebody who can look you in the eye and say, hey, you're neglecting your wife. You realize this is the daughter of the king? Everybody needs someone who, who, who can say to, to someone else, you, you know, you have all these things you want to do for God, but take care of your own kids. But with a nicer tone than I just used. <laughs> everybody everybody who, who wants to be used by God and be successful and, and um, you know, pastor your own things in your life that the Lord has given you. Every one of us needs someone who can tell us the truth and say, you know, you hear somebody make this disparaging comment about their spouse and say, hold, hold up, hold up, that's not funny. And I don't appreciate that. I wouldn't talk that way about my wife and you shouldn't talk your way about the, your wife. Okay, right now you might be thinking, oh, come on, Pastor Terry, down, boy, tone it down a little bit. <laughs> but there are big things at stake here. This is stuff that matters. Where are the men and women of courage who will stand up and be biblical friends to one another. We got enough part-time friends. We got enough friends who will do what I described before, you know. Uh, we don't need that. So the story goes on how Nathan <clears throat> was that friend and David accepted it and he repented completely. I love that. David David's life turned in those moments. I'm not going to teach about that right now, but I'm just going to tell you you can read about it in David's own words. Read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 will tell you what happened in his soul there. Great story of his repentance. And all of that happened because a biblical friend came and told him the truth in love. If the key ingredient for friends that struggle is love, the key ingredient for friends who stray is the truth. The truth. Because all love and no truth is hypocrisy. And all truth and no love is brutality. The power is in godly balance. And for change that lasts, choose a friend that's committed to change. Stop picking friends by affinities, by, by the fact that you both like to play canasta. That's okay. But that shouldn't be your primary reason, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with canasta. Can't remember anymore how I used to play it. But, you know, find someone of the same gender, your same gender, I'm not suggesting anything inappropriate here, who has a passion for the same priorities. Look for, for, look for friendship with, or look for someone who will help you be all that the Lord called you to be in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, or at your workplace. And if you're single, 
find someone who will help you live righteously in that challenge as well. Because God wants every one of us to have the power of biblical friendship in our lives. So there are a couple things that, um, you know, I, I feel like today was maybe could have been a little challenging for some. And so I asked Steve to prepare two things that I want to just mention to you. Um, I want us to end up with a positive message, something positive going out. Um, so that's why we're going to worship one song. And the second thing, too, is that you know that at the end of every service, we have people up front who will pray with you. They're not here to pry into your personal details, but they're here to take your circumstances to the Lord. Take advantage of that. Please take advantage of that if you want to do that. And let's pray. God, today, um, just ask, Lord, for you to... Well, first off, I'm grateful, Lord, that you give us examples. Help us to, to have the courage to have the commitment to that change, not only to listen to our friends, but to be a friend who shares the truth in love. So God, I pray that as a people, we would lean into your spirit, full of life and full of hope. I pray in Jesus' name.